Hello, and welcome to the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement's podcast, Walks at Work. I'm Craig Wilson, your host. I'm a self-declared walk, dad of two boys, native Arkansan, and I've been the health policy director at the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement for nearly a decade. On this show, we aim to demystify, boil down, and unwalk complex topics so that you can understand how the healthcare system is working or not working for you. On our inaugural Walks at Work episode, we're going to be talking about a topic that has impacted every part of our lives, the coronavirus pandemic. In Arkansas, our first confirmed coronavirus case was on March 11 of this year, and it has now been more than seven months that we have been navigating this public health emergency. During that time, the state has seen about 100,000 coronavirus cases, which is about 3% of Arkansas's total population of 3 million, more than 1,600 deaths, and hospitalizations due to the infectious disease continue to strain the state's capacity to respond. People with active infections in Arkansas on a daily basis now number more than 8,000. Now, that's about the size of the whole city of Stuttgart, or BB, or Newport. And projections are showing that the peak for infections won't be until March of next year. Now, for most of us, this is the first and hopefully only time in our lives we have experienced a public health emergency that is such an imminent threat and that has at times required restraint of liberties that we enjoy, like dining at restaurants or attending a baseball game. The pandemic has, in the harshest way possible, laid bare the gaps in our public health infrastructure and weakness in leadership at multiple levels of government. We've learned some hard lessons, and we continue to learn new things about this novel coronavirus on a daily basis as we fight the spread and treat those who have become infected. So, to help us better understand what is going on, to unwalk things, if you will, we have our first guest who is my boss, the president and CEO of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. He's a pediatrician, a faculty member at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, College of Medicine, and College of Public Health, and he's a fellow St. Louis Cardinals fanatic, Dr. Joe Thompson. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Craig. Glad to be here. All right. uh, Before we get started on our topic, tell me a little bit about why you enjoy so much about the work that we do at the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. Well, our center is now entering its third decade, and we've had an opportunity to influence some of the policies that affect people's lives every day across our state. It's really a unique opportunity and a great team that I work with to try to turn data into information and to inform decision makers, both in the public and in the private sector. I share that consensus. (laughs) Now, what's the most challenging aspect of the work that we do? And I can name a lot, but... I think the the most challenging is that it's not a direct impact. When a policy changes, it doesn't immediately have an effect. So it's sometimes hard to gather the the strength, the courage, the 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 consensus to actually push forward on a policy. One of the ones that was the most challenging and took us the longest time was just getting fluoride in the water so that people didn't have dental problems downstream in their lives. That took us almost a decade to try to get what was just a standard common knowledge of fluoride in the water helps make your teeth hard, and hard (laughs) teeth are good things. It seems like common sense, but uh, hard to make something happen in that space. So on a, before we get started, on a, on a more personal note, what do you do when you're not at work? 
besides watching Cardinals baseball, of course. So I have missed the Cardinals baseball games this <laughs> summer, as you and I both know. Uh, I love being outdoors. You can put me on the water, and it doesn't matter whether it's with a fishing rod or a canoe or behind a ski boat. Uh, I love being in the sunshine, love being in the water. Uh, when I can't be at the water, I'll be working out in my yard, uh, trying to grow something that is at least beautiful, if not edible. And keeping your bees, right? Uh, my bees are <laughs> keeping my bees away from me, too. That's an important part of the problem. So for our, our future regular listeners, this is a question I'm going to ask of all of our wonky guests, because in my other life outside of work, I sing in a band and I do a little acting here and there. Uh, so... Dr. Thompson, what would you say is your theme song or for you for being a baseball fan? What's your music when you walk up to the plate? Well, I'm not I'm not sure it exactly fits with walking up to the plate, but that's probably not <laughs> going to happen anyway. So uh, uh, I'll go with a theme song that I, that I think is important uh, because of the of the anxiety, because of the tension, because of the um, turmoil in our society. And that would be the Fearless by the Goo Goo Dolls. I'm gonna be uh, I think that's that's what everybody needs to listen to and walk out their front door with each and every morning. So another another baseball. Now, that one caught me out of left field. Uh, <laughs> okay. I did not expect that. I'll try so. to throw you a curve right. or two. <laughs> All right, let's get down to business. Uh, what is at work in the environment that led to this novel coronavirus? Well, I, I think there are several things. This is a risk that has been present uh, the world has experienced before with the Spanish uh, flu epidemic a uh, hundred plus years ago. But what's changed is now in our world, or at least before the coronavirus, we had enormous amounts of international travel. We were much more interconnected. Uh, we have many more people uh, moving many more places. And, and so when this virus jumped from some animal uh, to a human being, that wasn't the problem. It was the problem when it then jumped from the first human to the second human. And this is a novel virus. That's It's a novel coronavirus. Our immune systems have never seen it before. So we have no defense against it, and it has spread worldwide and is causing continual damage uh, across many countries. And the coronavirus is, it, the common cold is a coronavirus, right? Well, coronavirus, corona is a family of viruses. And yes, the common cold is one of many coronaviruses. There are a lot of coronaviruses that don't affect humans, that affect different types of animals, bats, pigs, uh, dogs. Uh, but this one jumped from some animal to a human, and then it propagated across the world and the human species. And we as humans had not seen it before, and our immune systems were not prepared for it. And that's why it has become a pandemic. So it really appears that at least locally and in and, and some parts of the, the rest of the nation, we've lost containment of the virus. What can we possibly do to get back on track? Well, I think using our logic and being committed, those are the two most important things. We know how this virus spreads. It's a respiratory virus. It spreads th primarily through droplets that we express when we talk, when we cough, when we sneeze. An infected person expresses those droplets, and those droplets, through one mechanism or another, touch the mucous membrane of another individual, their mouth, their nose, their eyes, and that's what then propagates the virus. Um, we know that hand washing, we know that gravity works on these uh, droplets, so that's why we try to keep at least six feet of distance. And we know that masks work to actually prevent the, the droplets from being expressed 
out into the air and potentially infecting other individuals. So we, we often talk a lot in the policy space about having individual policy in action, uh, government policy in action, and, and uh, private business policy in action. At, at all of those levels, we can, we can really do something to, to keep this uh, from, from spreading, right? Well, yes. And I think, yeah, I think there are three kind of levels of, uh, uh, of action that we must take to regain control of this virus and to stop its spread. One, is our, one are our individual actions. That's our hand washing. That's our hygiene. That's disinfecting the areas around us. That's when we, you know, when we go out, we are wearing a mask not only to protect ourselves, but also we may be asymptomatically infected and be spreading it to others. So that's individual action. There are collective actions that have been put in place. Those are the restrictions on the number of people that can be in a gathered place at one time, the number of people who can inhabit or, or, or be served by a restaurant or a bar. Those are collective actions. And then we have the public health efforts, which are underway, the contact tracing, uh, but not only the contact tracing, also the development of vaccines and new medicines uh, to be able to combat this new and uh, novel threat. So we know that there's uh, a lot of testing going on, and we know that there are two types of tests, antigen tests, which are sometimes called the, the rapid test, and molecular or PCR tests. So what's the difference in the two, and is one better than the other? So testing has been in the news since the onset of this pandemic, and, and just to back up half a step, one of our challenges was because we had never seen this virus before, we didn't have a test for the virus. So we had to develop the test. And I was actually quite impressed uh, that the DNA sequence, if you will, of the of the virus was was mapped early on because of the new technologies that we have uh, in the clinical and in the investigative space. But the different tests now, we have a molecular test, which actually tests for parts of the RNA or the DNA of the virus itself. So that is a test. It's a send-out test. Early on, it was the ice pick test in the back of your nose. I actually had it, the molecular test a couple of weeks ago when Ouch. I returned from a trip. Uh, it was much, much less uh, invasive. They handed me the swab, and I swabbed both sides of my nose under observation and handed it back. It, I, I sneezed, but I didn't have the ice pick experience <laughs> that many people have had earlier in the year. That test is the most accurate. It actually tests for DNA, RNA particles of the virus itself. Um, it's a very, very good test. It's a very accurate test, uh, but it has to be sent off. And, and in the send out, we've had some delays with the commercial labs and others that they've been have, as they have been overwhelmed. Um, the response and the results have been delayed in coming back. I think right now we've gotten on top of that. It's about a two day process uh, for that send out test. Obviously, we want to be able to have a point of care or on-site test, and that's what the antigen test is. It's a, a more looking at the envelope of the virus and, and some other um, um, uh, byproducts of the virus to be positive. It is an on-site. You can go into a doctor's office and have the test, and it, the results will come back within 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, it is a good test. It is not as precise as the molecular test, and so you have a few more false negatives, meaning that when you get a negative result, you may still be infected, but you were told that you were not. 
uh, and that's why we still continue the quarantine for people who've been exposed, even if they have a negative antigen test going forward. Yeah, I think that's an important point that people still need to quarantine even if they've had a negative test and have been exposed. This is a tricky virus. You know, the the Chinese did not design this virus. This is not a, 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 a infectious disease warfare agent. But if you if you were trying to design a trickier virus, I'm not sure what I would come up with. Just the characteristics of this virus, you know, about half the people that get infected never have a symptom. So they can be spreading the virus and not even know that they have the virus. Uh, And then for the rest of them, the virus can actually come on within 14 days after you've been exposed. So it is a very tricky virus. It's a very infectious virus. And that's why I think we have lost some of the control that we had at one point in time. So there's also the antibody test, and that one's different as well, right? The antibody test, yes, it's a different test. This is hopefully if you are exposed and infected or exposed and asymptomatically infected by the virus, your immune system will rev up and make antibodies so that in the future, if you get exposed again, your immune system won't be surprised. Again, this is a novel virus. None of our immune systems saw it in the, ha- in the past. But now that it's in our environment, if you get exposed, hopefully your immune system will build antibodies to actually be an early warning system for the future. You can actually test for those antibodies, and that's the antibody test. It tells not if you're infected today, but whether you have been exposed and potentially infected in the past. Okay. So, you know, I I think we're all ready to get back to as much normal as we possibly can, get back to our get back to our Cardinals games. So, and I think that a lot of that is going to hinge upon the availability of a vaccine, which is hopefully coming in the future. So what are the prospects for a vaccine and and what's the timeline on that? Well, vaccines are an important part of our armaments to battle infectious diseases. We have successfully uh, eliminated some and are you know, controlling others. The measles uh, uh, vaccine is a very effective vaccine at preventing measles. We're on the verge of eliminating polio worldwide because of a vaccine. Uh, We've got other vaccines that we have to have each year because our immune system doesn't hold on to the knowledge, like the flu, where we need a flu vaccine uh, each year. And and for some, um, uh, we need a booster after a while. So the pneumococcal vaccine for older adults to prevent them from having Uh, pneumococcal pneumonia. Uh, When this virus came on, I think our uh, worldwide, the pharmaceutical industry responded, governments funded, and we are now on warp speed, I think is the operational uh, uh, definition of the uh, team that's working on having a vaccine come forward. But a vaccine's development is complicated. I mean, there are actually three phases that a vaccine goes through. The first phase is a safety phase where somebody has developed a vaccine they think is going to work and they give it to a small number of people to make sure that it's not going to cause serious illness or potentially death. That's a safety um, phase, phase one. Phase two, then you do it on a slightly larger number of people where you're testing to see does it actually elicit immunity? Does it build those antibodies? And does that last? You don't want to take a vaccine that only lasts for a week. Uh, You want it to last for a period of time. And then the third phase is when then you move to a large number of people, tens of thousands of individuals that get randomized into a group that gets the vaccine and a group that gets a placebo. And you track those individuals forward to see if the vaccine truly provides the protection that you think you 
saw in phase two and that you have the safety for from phase one. And that's what we're in the middle of now with several vaccines moving forward, not only in the United States, but across the world. And what's the what's the potential timeline on that? Historically, vaccines have taken three to five years to develop uh, this timeline that has been put on uh, the manufacturers is much accelerated. And and hopefully we will have a vaccine, I think. It will not be this year in calendar year 2020, but I think sometime in 2021 we'll have a vaccine that we have not only evidence that it provides effectiveness against the virus, but also evidence and confidence that it is safe to take. So we all think about the vaccine as potentially being the silver bullet for us to get back to normal. But is is that enough for us to get back to normal? I don't think we're going back to normal the way that we were a year ago. I think we've got to move forward into the new normal, and we can talk about that in a little bit. Uh, You know, I am watching the vaccine trials. Uh, I think those are promising, but I think some are overly optimistic about how fast those are going to be available. Uh, Separately, there are some trials underway of some new antibodies um, that have been created by the pharmaceutical industry to see whether those work. Uh, to be able to give an individual who has been exposed or early in their infection uh, a a, a pharmaceutically derived antibody to give their their immune system the ability to rev up faster. I continue to watch for what I would call a knockout drug, a drug that if somebody got ill, you could give them and that would actually um, terminate or at least significantly cut short their illness. We do not have a knockout drug right now. The remdesivir, the antiviral, it helps a little bit. It reduces mortality by 5 or 10%. Dexamethasone, a steroid, if your immune system gets revved up too high, also reduces mortality by 5 or 10%. But those are, those are marginal differences. They're not knockout drugs. So I think you have the vaccine. I think you have antibodies. I think you have continued work to try to find a drug that helps the body fight this virus off. And I think we're probably going to see um, some some issues with actually distributing the vaccine and, and having people take up the vaccine because of, you know, um, historical uh, injustices in, in parts of uh, the, the black community, um, distrust in, um, in vaccines themselves, the anti-vax community. Um, so that's going to be difficult as well, you think? Well, even before the coronavirus, we had a challenge on having individuals recognize that they could prevent themselves and others from becoming ill by taking a vaccine and trusting the science that it is both safe and effective. Unfortunately, during this process, we've added the political polarization and the the candidly misinformation, if not outright lies about the coronavirus that have been you know, propagated uh, by leaders in this country, which even further erodes trust that the Food and Drug Administration, the Center for Disease Control, that the National Institutes of Health are acting in the public's best interest. Uh, you mentioned the uh, you know, historical experience, the Tuskegee experiment where African-Americans were intentionally infected with syphilis and then allowed to propagate that syphilis with no treatment to see what happened to individuals over their lifetime with syphilis, that was not that long ago. And it's still in the minds of many in our lower income and minority communities that that continues to see distrust 
in the system that is inflamed by some of the leadership and the polarization of the political process that we find ourselves in. It's important to, to point out that our history will come back and haunt us if, unless we correct it. <laughs> um, so we're dealing with a pandemic, an infectious disease outbreak, and in the middle of all this, we're, we're in the midst of a mental health crisis as well. Um, it's an incredibly stressful time, I think, for many across our country and right here in our state as well. So what advice do you have as we continue to navigate through the mental health piece of this pandemic? Well, I think there are very, very few people who are unaffected from you know a psychological perspective by this pandemic, whether it's your personal safety, whether it's your economic security, whether it's your responsibility in the job site or, or with your family, uh, whether it's your ability to gather for faith-based uh, activities, whether, it's, whether you're going to have Thanksgiving together with your family coming up in November. All of these are stressors that take their toll, and collectively, because it's hitting so many different aspects of our life, I think many folks are being mentally uh, uh, stressed, if you will, and for many folks, that stress turns into either physical illness or mental illness. Uh, and, and I think we all have a responsibility to reach out to each other, you know, our families, our coworkers, our fellow citizens, and just make sure that we're all doing okay. Uh, I've been on some phone calls with the municipal league members, mayors, uh, city uh, council members across the state, state chamber. And my recommendation to them is, you know, even if it's a stranger, just start the conversation by saying, this COVID is stressful. Are you doing okay? Frequently, just that simple question can open up a dialogue that is very helpful, that is very supportive, and that's very informative so that, you know, we're leaning in, we're helping each other get through this and moving towards a new normal that will be different, that will be safe, and that will be enjoyable in a way that we don't yet know how it's going to be. It's great advice. We're, we're in this for the long haul. So, <laughs> you know, I, I think we're going to be in some type of modified, you know, economy, modified behavior, restricted activities well into 2021, if not 2022. Because as you mentioned, even when the vaccine is available, the uptake is going to be not 100%. So the threat is going to remain in our communities and uh, across our state. So this is Clearly a complicated topic. It's created a lot of confusion. What are some of the things that the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement is doing to help individuals and communities navigate the pandemic? Well, I think several things. And, and again, it's, it's the strength of our center, which we take data, we try to turn it into information, and we make it available for people to make decisions. Uh, people have seen the governor and the secretaries of health provide county-level information about new COVID cases or hospitalizations and so forth. You know, in our conversations, we really wanted to drive that information down to the local level to give local decision makers, whether that's a school superintendent, a parent, a mayor, you know, a fire chief, police chief, local information about the virus in their community. So we worked in collaboration with the health department to get their COVID-19 data, and then we've geoplotted it across the state. So each week now, we report for the school districts, we report for communities, we report even at the individual zip code level, the number of new cases of COVID, so that people can know what the level of threat is, and they can take appropriate action, and that they can continue their vigilance with the three things that we know work, hand washing, distancing, and facial masks. Data into action. That's what what we like to do. 
we, we <laughs> like to be first right and credible. And I think in this situation, we're providing critical information for local individuals to make decisions that they, they need to be informed of. Well, Dr. Thompson, thank you for joining us today. I know that we're going to have you on multiple more times, and uh, uh, we'll have some different topics to discuss next time. Well, thank you for listening to our inaugural Walks at Work episode. You can listen to our bi-weekly podcast on our website, achi.net. A special thanks to the Bobby L. Roberts Library of Arkansas History and Art, which is a part of the Central Arkansas Library System, for allowing us to use their studio to record our podcast. If you have any topics you would like us to consider putting on our list to cover in the next few months, please email us at achi at achi.net. Thanks for listening.